What are you doing? Replaying my earlier games. What on earth for? Looking for weaknesses in my play. I see. And? There aren't any. Pseudo-Academic Roundtable, Pop Culture Analysis with Drinking and Swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Katya Gorecki. How's it going, Katya? You know, it's, uh, I feel like we need a, a new thing to ask in 2020. I feel like asking <laughs> how's it going is a very loaded, loaded question. Especially, we're, we're recording this the week of Christmas, which I feel like, I've just seen the reports rolling in of, like, everyone's Christmases are weird this year. Uh, yeah. You know. But it's the last show of the year for us. And so we should be happy because 2020 is ending and everything is going to be sure. magically better. Like that's, uh, that, that, that's what I read on the internet. It, it's just, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's totally how time how works. Time <laughs> works and calendars, uh, because those totally are not mm-hmm. just social constructions. Yep. They're just linear yeah. time's a myth. And we're going to have, um, ma- magic's going to happen and the world's going to be, the universe is going to be better by the time people hear this, right? That's, that, that's how I mean, it's going to work. I hope that it's better, better by the time people hear us. I don't know if there's going to be a sudden break at like at midnight on, <laughs> on New Year's Eve that suddenly COVID is no longer reality and the world poofs into like yeah. utopia with unicorns and pie. But I will hold out for that possibility. Technically, in the continuum of the universe, all things are possible. One would hope. One would hope. (laughs) (laughs) Well, okay. so we have we have a I think an interesting show today because um, we've been doing these Christmas shows and then we had one topic that we wanted to get to that wasn't Christmassy. So we're we're fitting that in in the end of the year because it just sort of it was relevant right now. But what are we talking about today? I mean, basically, I was looking for an excuse to talk about the Queen's Gambit, which should surprise no one, because, of course, the Queen's Gambit was released uh, by Netflix as a limited series in, I believe, the end of October. Um, yeah, something like and that. It quickly became like the thing to watch. And of course, I want to talk about it because 1960s fashion and nerds which, mm-hmm. you know, are two of my things. They didn't fit in video games, although there is kind of some virtual reality stuff going on vis-a-vis potential psychosis. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, really, it is actually all of my interests bundled into one show. Uh, mm-hmm. And it also is in one neatly t- like tight season. So uh, my short attention span is also gratified. But basically, I want to talk about that because I think that there's been, for, for a limited series, uh, I think that there's a there's a lot to talk about uh, from like some of the racial stuff to class to the way it presents substance abuse, uh, mental illness, all kinds of stuff. Uh, it's it's a pretty substantive show. Uh, it was, and it was good. It was really good. And it so. was good. It, <laughs> yes, it was tight television, um, which Netflix is increasingly good at. Yeah. So regular listeners are going to notice that so far they've only heard, you know, my voice and your voice. Um, mm. That is not a lot of times that means that the other two hosts are not interested in the topic. Um, that was not the case this time. Wayne and Hannah are both enjoying the show, but neither of them finished it in time. 
to record. So, so we couldn't have to inflict themselves to spoilers. Right. So we, so, so we are avoiding spoilers for them, but that means, you know, we're going to talk spoilers on our episode today. So pause this, then go write us a five-star review on iTunes, subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit like button, all that stuff, and then go watch the the show in its entirety. Come back and listen to this show because, you know, now I'm not saying don't listen to our show. I'm saying, you know, make sure you're you're caught up or decide that you don't care about spoilers and listen to us either way. But we don't have Wayne. We don't have Hannah. So we needed some guests. So we, we each brought one. Who'd you bring? So I have uh, Anastasia, who's currently a PhD candidate at Duke University, and I'll let her introduce herself. Hey, y'all. Um, thanks so much for having me. Um, as Katya mentioned, I am based at Duke University, where I am a cultural researcher, I'm completing my PhD in cultural studies and critical theory. And I specialize specifically in black studies and feminist theory, um, which is another way to say that I like to think about race, gender and class in U.S. culture. Mm-hmm. That sounds and, familiar. <laughs> right. One of the reasons I wanted I wanted uh, Anastasia on the show is because actually we were having a conversation about the Queen's Gambit on LinkedIn and sort of like the whole phenomenon of this show inspiring like a resurgence and interest in chess, uh, which also as the game person, I guess technically this does have all my interests. It has games in it, even though I'm not a chess player. Uh, <laughs> chess confuses me, if I'm perfectly honest. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so I thought, I, I, you know. I want to pick her brain about all the things she thinks about the show. What I got from that was, I was like, you use LinkedIn to talk to people? I, I do. Occasionally. I use LinkedIn. Uh, I, I use LinkedIn to log into once every six months and accept all my notifications of, oh, so-and-so has tried to friend you because yeah, I'm really bad. Now, who did you drag on the show? I, I brought, I, like, as I frequently do, I, I, I brought my wife, Stephanie. Hey, Steph. Hello. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. And um, Stephanie, well, you know, you've been on the show several times before. So, yes. so just remind people what you do specifically. And Well, I have a PhD in cognitive psychology, so I study learning. And one of the things that made me interested in the show was that they it was about chess and learning to play chess and what expertise involves. And there are several like famous papers written by people that are like two steps away from my <laughs> academic circle who've written like famous papers on that. So I was interested in that. And I am a former chess. Well, I am. I played chess a lot as a kid. <laughs> I have kind of a little <laughs> bit of a like a, a competitive streak in me. So I haven't played in a while because last time I played my cousin, I made a bad <laughs> move and I ended up like like um, kicking the chessboard and it, it decapitated one of the bishops. So I haven't like played much <laughs> since then because I think I needed to work on my um, my emotions. So I've been meditating since then. <laughs> but anyway, I uh, really enjoyed the show. So Mav didn't actually drag me on. I kind of like volunteered, I guess, you were to come on. Voluntarily dragged on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I kind of resisted watching the show at first um, because I thought it might show like sort of like a magical way of people becoming experts in chess. But then I verified with someone who watched it that that wasn't the case. So then I watched it and I really enjoyed it. So I wanted to be on the show. Yeah. Um, so for listeners, I'm going to tell a slightly embarrassing story about Stephanie. <laughs> um, not really. Um, <laughs> that's, that's okay. No, well, just, Only just, slightly. No, it's, 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 it's come up on the show before, but um, just for, so people know the kind of person you are. So you know how how geeks 
nerds like always get well well that's not accurate because it didn't you know in reality chess works like that you know like people do sure. that or yeah. or you know you're not going to say I did that are you no 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 okay. not um well yes but not here um so just it, it's covering what you, what you just said you know Stephanie doesn't do that about like say chess or the way superpowers work or saying something's realistic but Stephanie's research is so important to her and I think I've said this on the show before that Steph hated the movie Inside Out when we saw it because she thought it was not scientifically accurate. Because I imagine what I would do if I were making that movie and it was completely different and I was very disappointed. (laughs) So yes, the children's movie about little cartoon emotions in your brain was not scientifically accurate. And it could have been done better, in my opinion. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought Steph would be great because she actually understands things. Like, like one of the things that happens in this series is, um, among other things, there's her obsession with chess and then the ways in which she learns chess and she visualizes the game tree 18 billion steps ahead looking by looking at the ceiling and just that entire process of thinking i thought it would be interesting to hear stuff talk about that so um so we're going to talk about a whole bunch of stuff today we're going to talk about like pretty much everything that we can think of from the show from because i've got a lot of thoughts on classes on class and gender and race issues that like happen throughout the show there's things about fashion um there's the things about learning there's the things about drug addiction um and the ways in which she sort of dealt with it and all you know i mean these are all things that you touched on in the call for comments katya yeah i mean i think i and this honestly maybe you can jump in because i think one of the things we were yes on linkedin Mav. Uh, having a conversation about was kind of like the what what is so appealing about this show um because it is like aside from being like aesthetically gorgeous and like i think a really tight narrative arc even though i think there's some like flaws with the shows generally like it's just it hit a chord um Mm -hmm. and i think when like for those of you who read the blog post part of my theory for that was like the show is only kind of like chess is the occasion for the show it's not really about chess um, a lot of the storyline is sort of around Beth, the main character, Beth Harmon, basically having these really radical ups and downs over her life. And part of it is also, I think it's, was it seven episodes? It's seven yep. episodes. Yeah. Like her entire, like her life from like being a young child up until like, I believe her like early twenties is compressed into seven episodes. So part of it is it's like you're having like over 10 years of life experience compressed into a very small period, but it's basically taking you through a roller coaster of like high achievement, like horrible lows of like everything is is going is going wrong, having a spiraling breakdown of substance abuse and like some mental things that are you know may or may not be tied entirely to substance abuse, unclear. Uh, and basically watching someone cope. And part of my theory is that like, aside from this being like on the one hand, the show I think has this escapist fantasy of like very glamorous fashion and this sort of like period, like very very interesting like period aesthetic, which you know we see in things like Mad Men. I think people find find cathartic on some level while simultaneously also watch somebody basically dealing with not the same struggles everyone's dealing with in 2020 like very different ones but i think that like i i do think a lot of viewers might see themselves in there because like no matter how good 2020 has been for you it's not probably been great uh (laughs) and i mean even just looking at like as much as like this show has inspired kind of a resurgence in you know google searches for chess stuff we're also seeing 2020 like record level interest in people pursuing um mental health care so a show and substance abuse actually uh and so i think it just kind of like speaks to people's experience right now i don't know Mm -hmm. 
I'm curious what other people's takes on like why why it seems like this show is resonating. Because I am a little like I feel like I'm simultaneously surprised and also not surprised that it's so popular. I think there's a lot going on. I think that um, the way 2020 went down, our current cultural moment, um, where everyone, you know, a, a large percentage of the world, not even just the country, but the world, society at large, just became shut-ins, and so our shared experience went back to being about, you know, about things that we could consume and talk about online at the same time. So, I mean, I, I teased you about LinkedIn, but that's, that's just cause it's fun to make fun of LinkedIn. Me. Well, right. and you, yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, but like, um, I, I imagine there was a point when the television universe was smaller, right? There was a point where everyone like the next day, everyone wanted to talk about the season finale of MASH. The next day, everybody wanted to talk about mm-hmm. who shot JR. The, you know, the next day, everyone wanted to talk about Lucy and Desi having a baby, right? Like this, the television universe used to be very, very small. And that became water cooler conversation for the masses, right? And then as the television universe expands and becomes diversified, streaming takes hold. There are, you know, there's not just three channels. Anybody can watch whatever you want. Like, like for instance, Stephanie, you are a big fan of like, um, Steph loves, uh, true crime, uh, docu-series, uh, and like, basically she talks about them with my mother. Cause they're the only two people on the planet who watch this show. There's not a whole true. network, <laughs> there's a whole network investigation yes. to discovery that is produced just for Steph and my mom to watch and nobody else watches it. <laughs> Readings or two. Uh, <laughs> well, no, but sure. Carry okay. the whole thing. But well, okay, no, but there is, but but it's, but it's a small niche thing and you found, and you know, you find little markets, right? Um, But now we, but there used to be this world where just everybody had to watch the, had to watch the same thing because that's all there was. And that drove conversation. And now when we live in a world where we don't have real human interaction anymore, because everybody's trapped inside, we are working from home, we've got Zoom, um, our cultural touch tones right now aren't oh did you watch the Steelers game last night or oh um you know how about that Avengers movie or like literally what we have to talk about are is TV that we can all consume at our leisure at the same time and I think that it doesn't quality is not even of the of the uh, the the thing that matters as much we've got Queen's Gambit you know mm-hmm. we had fucking Tiger King like six months ago which was not good oh, that's it was a train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. It was a train wreck we all wanted to watch. Uh, yes, exactly. It was it was it was that thing. So I so I think that there's um I think there's a a a level of we can have a community talking about this quirky psychological this quirky psychodrama about mm-hmm. chess and then like find something that you're interested in. I'm interested in her trauma. I'm interested in the in the gender dynamic. I'm interested in exploring the sexuality of a young woman in the 1970s, the 60s and 70s. I'm interested in the racial dynamic. I'm interested in the drug dynamic. There's like there's something to pick apart and talk about on shows like this, but also just, you know, on your FaceTime call with your brother, you know? Yeah, I think maybe for me, um, the reason I was interested in it was I still have like lingering anger over the 2016 election. So I like to see movies where women triumph over men in traditional like <laughs> men's um, <laughs> men's worlds. Did you know she was going to triumph before you started watching it? Though? Um, it would have been really disappointing if she had it. I did not know. No, I didn't. Okay. But I, I kind of I think most people do. 
I think it's a very predictable show, and I think that's part of the appeal, though. Yeah. Okay, so, Katya, you said it's not about chess, and it's not, right? Like, this this series is rocky. It's every sports movie. Every sports movie mm-hmm. is exactly this story, right? Like, Bad News Bears, Rocky, um, Any Given Sunday, one of my favorites, a football movie. You know, like, it doesn't matter what the sport is. The show is a person devoted to this one thing that they're good at, and sports becomes a metaphor for their triumph of human spirit over all the adversity in their life, right? And that's the story of Rocky. That's the story of Queen's Gambit. Rocky is interesting. It's one of the most famous sports movies ever made. It won an Academy Award. And what's amazing about Rocky is he fucking loses. Like, like, like he, he works, you know, the, the story of Rocky, the original Rocky is he works his ass off. He works his way to the pinnacle. He does everything he can. He goes out there, he gives it his all and Apollo beats him. That's how the first Rocky movie ends. And that actually is what happens in this. Now, this isn't this isn't just one two hour movie. It's a seven episode show. So they've got, you know, six hours of content. And that actually happens at one point in this. Right. Like she she works and she works and she goes to New York to the champ, you know, and or Mm -hmm. I think it's in Paris when she and she just loses. You know, she works her ass off and she still loses. And for Rocky, that's the end of the story. And I think you could have ended this here because the lesson becomes, you know, sometimes you just aren't the best, but you are, you know, you're still better than 99.99999% of the planet. She just, she could have lost to the Russians and she doesn't. But I think that's what makes the show interesting is like, you know, it's still a cultural, you know, it's, it's a story about the triumph of the human spirit. And I don't think you have to know anything about chess in order to watch the show. Um, I I just got excited about um, what I heard, the triumph of the human spirit, because um, I think that's how Katya and I connected um, um, in terms of, you know, talking about Queen's Gambit. Um, I'm really fascinated um, to think about genius as something that is um, constantly attractive to us through culture, right? Like mm-hmm. that is something that, um, you know, is very compelling, compelling to us. And I think there's something about this particular, you know, social culture moment where so many of us are struggling, um, that there is something aspirational, something hopeful about, you know, this underdog who is, mm-hmm. you know, actually a genius. Right. And I think, mm-hmm. um, I think there's something to be said about, um, Beth uh, being an orphan, being traumatized, being kind of a loner, right. Who has this special, beautiful, brilliant part of her. And I think that, you know, to me, as even as I'm quite critical of some of the aspects of the show, right. I, I myself, you know, was in tears at the end, right. Yeah. And was very moved by it. Um, and I, I think even with to Stephanie's point, I think there's something about, um, you know, having that ha- feminist hero, having that mm-hmm. feminist underdog who kind of overcomes whatever obstacles are in her way, whether, you know, structural, social or internal, um, and then becomes this genius, this beacon of hope for us is super mm-hmm. powerful. And I think mm-hmm. uh, that is something that I'm noticing on Netflix as well. I was as we, we were talking, I was thinking of this other show that I watch now. Um, which is um, Warrior Nun, which is also about oh a young woman who, you know, is disabled, who is unable to walk. And then she gets, you know, that um, gift. Um, and I will not spoil it for you, but, you know, and then the mentor as well, black woman as well in that show comes along and sort of guides her to her quote unquote purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I really appreciated about the show, too, was like the, my initial resistance was I didn't want it to be just about someone who's just like somehow naturally magically gifted at this particular 
activity chess I, I i liked that i saw that she progressed through like hard work and lots of thought and lots of reading and so it, it showed like you know it was kind of the equivalent to rocky training mm-hmm. so it wasn't mm-hmm. that she just like naturally had this you know magical gift of i think a lot of people do think that they think some people are just like talented in specific ways but maybe they are maybe that's she part, is. maybe she that's part, yeah that's yeah. part of it i mean her mother mm-hmm. was you know we find out that her mother actually has a phd in mathematics i believe mm-hmm. but she does she's mentally ill but so she has that going for her but she also does have this like obsession and this very like disciplined way that her she was introduced to the the domain of chess mm-hmm. through that that guy he i like the way he very methodically introduced well she kind of learned the basic stuff on her own and then he sat her down when he eventually agreed mm-hmm. <laughs> to work with her and then just sh- showed her like one thing at a time and then she built on that mm-hmm. and i like mm-hmm. that it was a display of like incremental learning but time intensive too and she was up i imagine like hours she was up hours at night looking at the ceiling imagining different plays well we know she read that one book over and over again yes. for yes. presumably yeah. eight for like because they take chess away from her when she's 10 and she doesn't play again until she's 15 or 16 so i imagine she's literally just studying right she has theory. the basics at that point so she can yeah, yeah so she she's can, got six yeah. years of just reading chess theory right and that and, and, and it's implied that she, yeah yeah and it's implied that she does nothing but this <laughs> yeah right? and i think just like that showing that and how much work it is i think that is really helpful to people that don't feel like like feel like chess isn't for them like a lot of girls or mm-hmm. maybe minority people who you know because tr- traditionally it's like white men who are like su- succeed in chess mm-hmm. but yeah i i can mm-hmm. foresee like in the future there will be a lot of interest by young women in chess and i i think that i mean i know people were talking about how even like right now there's very few women who are in the top spots in chess but i predict in like 10 years <laughs> that'll be different mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, just because of the show or you think just because we're i mean and I'm, I'm saying this aspirationally as much as more so than as a fact but do you think it's because of the show or do you think it's because we're doing better about n- not treating girls like they're stupid? Oh, probably both. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think it's a little yeah. column A, a little column B. I mean, I think one of the interesting things to note, and I think this is like, the show is really great and it hits a lot of cultural touchstones. I think it was also coming, like, the fact that it is about chess, I mean, there has been this huge spike in interest in chess since the show, but that's actually yeah. already been building, largely because of quarantine. It's true of most games, but especially analog games where you can play against other people. Um, they've all been trending. Chess more so than some of the other ones. So, like, yeah, and I, like, I would imagine, I don't know, I could be wrong, but, like, I could I could see, like, this show being an occasion for a lot of, like, especially, like, maybe older relatives who, like, in my life, it's usually older relatives who teach people how to play chess, because that's, I don't know, that's mm-hmm. my family. Uh, my 10-year-old niece is a massive chess fan. Massive chess nerd. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I imagine it be, yeah, being a thing where, like, maybe, you know, yeah, young like, kids are expressing interest in chess, and they're, like, you know, random older relative that they're stuck in their house with right now. It's like, let me teach you the ways. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Which is actually interesting about that you bring up teaching. Cause I think that's one of the things I'm very fascinated about with this show is just how this, um, idea of genius idea of talent actually maps so perfectly onto our own cultural assumptions about what success means and how once uh, one 
achieve success in American society. And I think in that, in that sense, to me, um, and perhaps those are some of the aspects that I was more critical of, I think there is a tendency of mm-hmm. us to be drawn to these notions of genius. And even as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to us talk, there's this idea of like, oh, she worked hard. You know, she, she um, studied um, and she read the books and she was just so rigorous about sharpening her talent, her kind of natural gift, which I think is valid. I also think there's something to be said about that Beth um, does not um, succeed by herself. She does not win. Yes. Um, she does not win, um, you know, um, in whatever competitions um, are happening throughout the series or the final one on her own. Right. And I think mm-hmm. that's um, where her character gets rather compelling and also complicated because she's so um, self-centered um, so mm-hmm. obsessed, you know, with this idea of success, idea, idea of overcoming. Um, and I think we are attracted to that notion of success w- such that people, her friends, Jolene, her childhood friend, um, Mr. Scheibel, if I'm pronouncing his last name correctly, mm-hmm. who, right. mm-hmm. you know, sends her the check. They're all kind of in the background where we don't mm-hmm. even really talk about them or think about, or at least for what I've read, we don't really talk about how, you know, the, her genius is made possible by all these people around her, her supporting her for her journey, like propping her up for success. But our culture is so, you know, I think um, just um, consumed by this idea of individuality, creativity, yes. that, you know, genius yeah. is made, um, you, you make yourself, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. No, I think yeah. that's really that's really interesting, and I think like through that lens, in a weird way, I think a lot of like her breakdown through the show and kind of like her ultimate sort of like victory in the end is through a lens of figuring out that actually, like the more she's obsessed with this individualist kind of way of living and like the, this individualist way of of cultivating her genius, if we want to call it that, mm-hmm. like it's basically eating her alive. Yeah, because she spends most mm-hmm. of the most of the story like because of her traumatic past, because of things that are going on in her current life, because of the amount of relatives, both adopted and otherwise, that pass away. She spends most of her adult life like basically shoving people away, even as they're trying to help her, either with chess or with like her personal issues. And uh-huh. it's only in the end that like we we're talking about she wins because like she's basically told like, oh, the Russians always win because they work as a team. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. only when she starts accepting help. And I think a lot of that comes with recognizing and kind of reckoning with the ways that she's treated people kind of like garbage through her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and she witnessed the <laughs> I, I couldn't understand the scene where the Russians had their hotel door open. That scene bothered me. <laughs> like they had the door open to the entire. Yeah, I feel like they would not hallway. have been that. No, like, no, that they're was very, very smart people. <laughs> yeah, like a little, little plot they, needed, they needed the movie to happen. Yes. Yeah. But, uh, sure. I mean, she learned from that, too. Yeah. I mean, she learned well, yeah, from and, the other culture. And that's kind of I mean, I want to build off of what Anastasia just said and sort of towards some of the stuff that you talk about in your research stuff. One of the things that um, that you were just talking about was the rugged individualism, which is sort of um, <laughs> in my research, I often talk about the American monomyth. And we have this the mythic American hero is just someone who pulls themselves up by their own bootstraps, does everything themselves. And, you know, you know, I, you know, I am a self-made man, her, you know, and I grunt and I, you know, and I overcome all, all adversity. And we celebrate that even in something like Rocky, we celebrate that even though Rocky is not on his own, like even in that first movie, Rocky has Polly and Adrian, like he's got a team that puts him together. Right. But we look at it like he's the, like he's the sole hero. He was the, he's mm-hmm. the force. And I think with, with Beth, we end up with, um, 
a character who she thinks of herself that way, even with um, even though she doesn't get there by herself. She has she has Scheibel. She has her adoptive mother. And then eventually there's a point where when she first starts dating Beltic, you know, and he says, I want to coach you. What I thought was amazing about that was um, Harry says, I want to coach you. And he says, I admit you're better than me. And like, he's like, he's mm-hmm. like, you are yeah. a better player. Yes. He fundamentally says, you are a better player than yes. me. you kicked my ass for that years was pro ago. feminist. Um, that was very awesome. But he also says, <laughs> no, no, but he also says, but there are flaws in your game that just like yeah. you play, you play entirely based on instinct and here are problems mm-hmm. you could have lost if someone had figured this out. Right. And then she, right. then later Benny tells her the same thing. It, um, and then you see her spiraling out of control with her drug abuse and just her inability to sort of get through the trauma of losing a second mother and, mm-hmm. you know, like all these problems and the show very much highlights the flaw in the idea of rugged individualism like mm-hmm. it's just sort of because she's not that she mm-hmm. tries to be that she is the hero you know she's our protagonist but she has the support system like ultimately she wins at the end Kathy, you just pointed out ultimately mm-hmm. she wins at the end because of you know the coalition of ex-boyfriends coalescing around her and try, <laughs> and, 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 try, and and like overcoming the like yeah you know, i mean Vinny and harry are basically like you broke our hearts, but we're beating the fucking Russians. So like, so like, which we, I actually we, really kind of love. Actually, yeah. like, and it was just like we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna help you because we, we need you. Bit, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think, I think like, like a lot of it is that the rugged individualism part is she has this innate talent, but throughout the show, she relies on other people to cultivate that talent. Like you're, t- I mean, yes. you're talking about yeah. Harry. Like part of the reason is it's like the way the show presents it. Like Harry and and all of her various like male consorts uh most of them had like they had some talent but most of them had to train themselves to be good in a mm-hmm. way that at least initially she doesn't have to because she's innately i mean she walks into a chess tournament as a high school student and beats the pants off of everybody with and like yes she studied to that point but she doesn't you know and but but a lot of that is even from the mentorship of Scheibel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which and at each stage, to be honest the fact that what? like yeah it broke my heart that, you know, um, I mean, I guess part of me wants to be empathetic with Beth, right? But it broke my heart, that scene where she walks back after Mr. Scheibel uh, passes away. And, you know, at this point, I'm just sobbing um, as I'm watching this series, right, where Mr. Scheibel kind of collects um, all of these um, kind of uh, newspaper clips or, you know, yeah, I cry too. <laughs> headlines, et cetera, right? And so, you know, there's just something um, so powerful, so emotional about mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, it, even Jeline, when she comes back into her life, she mm-hmm. talks about following her. You know, I've, you know, we have been out of touch, so to say, mm-hmm. but I have been watching your every move. Mm-hmm. And all mm-hmm. of these people are watching her, right? And I think that's, it's, it's tragic, right? And, and I guess mm-hmm. um, the tragedy, this tragedy is very human in a way that, you know, as Katya mentioned, I think um, Beth is unable to kind of experience intimacy or have these um, really close encounters with people, right? And, you know, Mr. Scheibel, <laughs> the teacher is sort of um, kind of left um, completely out of this narrative of success. And so, you know, so I think it, it just kind of develops more of these um, touchstones throughout the narrative um, that kind of bring back this idea um, that, you know, there, she, she, her success is a labor of love of other people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What really drove that home for me, um, Scheibel was touching, especially when he dies. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes. But the, and, and Jolene is touching and they follow her because though not blood related, that's a surrogate father and a surrogate sister. They think of her mm-hmm. like family. Yep. They love her. 
where that was really driven home for me was when she's strung out of her mind and she goes back to her hometown chess tournament um, as a guest of honor. And she doesn't even remember, but there's the girl that she beat for her very first match and mm-hmm. like, uh, and the girl who gave her tampon mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and Beth doesn't remember her at all, but for this woman, you know, now woman six, seven years later or whatever, um, She's like, she's insanely proud. She's like, yeah, I don't really play anymore, but I've been following your career because like, I just always tell people that I'm the first person you ever professionally (laughs) beat. And like that, that just, that's like, that really pulls together that moment of it's not just Beth on her own. This woman is just Mm -hmm. massively proud that she can be a part of the story. Mm -hmm. And I don't even remember the character's name because it doesn't matter. Right. She's just like, I am somebody who got beat. by Yeah. I mean, maybe that's like one of the reasons that she was able to eventually overcome her traumas. Just like this knowledge that all of these people in the background were rooting for her. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's psychologically valid or not. And if I am to like, um, I guess, think about it, you know, the other side of it. Right. I think there's some, you know, on one side, I guess we have this feminist genius who overcomes the underdog. Right. She's brilliant. She's fierce. She's passionate. And on the other hand, you know, we have this dynamic. And, you know, I think someone mentioned class um, and race mm-hmm. early on in this conversation, right? So if Mr. Scheibel is a working class um, person who is just kind of in the basement, very figuratively or symbolically um, in this narrative, right? Who's in the basement, who's kind of a loner um, and he props her up, you know, he gives mm-hmm. her uh, perhaps not the talent or necessarily training because she's so gifted right away. Um, but he gives her um, he gives her the opportunity. He connects her to the right person. Um, he makes sure she's able to enter this first competition. Mm, um, you know, there's something to me there about class um, that is lurking underneath and, you know, in kind of in in um, Beth's ascension towards success and him remaining in the basement. I think that's very symbolic. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, of course, Jolene um, as her, you know, quote unquote, black friend um, mm-hmm. who also facilitates, you know, um, her success by donating her savings for law school, I believe, um, mm-hmm. to go, you know, for her to go um, to Moscow. And so I think there is something to be said about genius and whiteness and in the way that, um, you know, whiteness is individualistic and um, white genius is individualistic and not communal. Um, and mm-hmm. so perhaps this is me reading, you know, my own um, intellectual interest into this, but I think there's something to be said um, about, um, you know, this dynamic around class and race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of the scene. I think they're playing squash. Um, yeah. and they're kind I mean, of sitting they're, on the, they're trying to, <laughs> they're, trying oh, to. Okay. they're sitting on the gym floor. And it's at one point, Beth, when, you know, Jolene offers the money, Beth refers to her as a guardian angel. And Jolene is, I think, appropriately pissed off. Yeah. And is like, no, I'm giving you the money because you're family. I mean, I think importantly, like, uh, Jolene, even though Beth at certain points asks other people for financial support to go to Russia or for other things, like it comes from Jolene and Scheibel. Mm-hmm. Um, when it, when it comes to money, that's getting her to the next game. Basically, those are the, those are the two sort of like familial figures that it comes from. It's not, it's not, like, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think it's ever any of her like current or ex-boyfriend kind of figures. Um, no. And then right. Jolene kind of like goes into this. None of the boyfriends actually give her money. They, they do all offer emotional support, which right. is sometimes stomped on. But um, but the money, yeah. <laughs> the money that she doesn't earn, the two times that it matters, come from comes from Jolene and from um, Scheibel. And those are and they're, they're the ones that are m- removing like the necessary roadblocks to go to the next thing. Like while other people are providing like help with cultivating her skills, they're like, oh, you actually in order for those skills to mean anything, you need 
concrete financial support. Let me give you that thing. And I think up until that point, because Jolene and Scheibel have been largely absent figures, like they show up in, the, in her childhood, but then after that, they kind of just kind of fade into the background. They do become these kind of amorphous guardian angel figures. And I think that scene, I don't know if it quite fully does it just because of how short the series is, but it does kind of like try and recuperate. Like, no, these are actual people. And especially like the things they've been following you and they care about you and they love you. And you, human being who has never looked back for a variety of reasons, kind of rejected them, but they're still here for you. Mm -hmm. Right. But I think also that gets that gets also complicated and problematic around like Jolene. And I wouldn't be the first person to say where in that particular scene as a black woman, Jolene becomes kind of modern day mammy, right? I mean, I think it's so I personally, as a viewer, was so angered by this idea that, you know, as a black woman living, um, I guess, in the 60s, um, Jolene would, you know, donate um, essentially all her savings, Mm -hmm. you know, for law school um, to prop up Beth uh, after she kind of out of principle rejects the money. Right. And, you know, Mm -hmm. perhaps perhaps that act of rejecting money from that church group serves as Beth's own kind of principled rebellion against, you know, being um, told what to do or kind of um, making it it is her moment of making decisions for herself. Yet at the same time, you know, Jolene comes back um, and sort of um, rescues her, right, from um, the consequence of her decisions, right, which is, again, that, you know, she makes that she makes that principal choice, but she's left with nothing. Um, and then Jolene comes in and she's as a black woman, you know, she's nurturing. Um, she's very supportive. Again, there's this language of family, um, which I think, you know, uh, would have been uh, perhaps a more meaningful scene for me had Jolene's character been developed throughout um throughout the series from the beginning to the end. But like we see um, Jolene's, um, I mean, I wouldn't even say that it's evolution of her character, right? Like in the beginning, mm-hmm. she is um, in my she view. She just manifests. She's just like, she's like a rebellious, very stereotypical, mm-hmm. sassy, rebellious black girl, you know? Um, and then, you know, who becomes um, this white orphans, you know, best friend. Um, and then in the end, she comes back in again, you know, rescuing her. And so, you know, I think that's the, that part of the show where I felt kind of most um, had most complicated feelings about. Mm-hmm. I have such complicated feelings on this. So uh, I'm going to link an article in the show notes um, by Gloria Oladipo called um, The Miss Magical Negro Trope in the Queen's Gambit. I, I'm not as against it as the article is. But I do think it's complicated because so for those who don't know, magical Negro concept, it's a trope that occurs in literature wherein uh, problems become magically solved by a wise um, black overseer who's more guardian angel than character. And mm-hmm. um, and it's it happens in a lot of stuff. It's a, it's a, it's common enough that it becomes a trope in literature. And Oladipo sort of accuses the Jolene character of doing this, right? I think it's a little more complicated than that because I think the character of Jolene on the page or on screen, like 
specifically tries to remove that element for herself. She, by saying, I am not a guardian angel. I am your sister. Mm -hmm. I'm giving you this because I love you. And if I had problems, you would do the same for me. I hope, you know, like that was fine. Um, And I think that does something. um, The, and I I think it does resist that nature a little bit. I also think that it, it it does a good job of saying this is 1965 through, I think Mm -hmm. it ends in like 70 or 71 or something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. like that, that entire time period. Like having them be, you know, this is the most racially and sexually diverse cast that one could hope for, for that to be and still be anywhere near accurate to that cultural moment. So I understand that issue as well. On the other hand, it is still there. So the criticism is still valid, right? Because Jolene yeah. really does step in and solve the problem, as does um, Towns you know, her gay friend who has been largely absent from the narrative for five fucking episodes at this point. Like, like they, they both like Jolene hasn't been around for a long period. Towns has not been around for a long period. And they both just kind of come to the rescue mm-hmm. to help the white girl. And it is, a, it is a problem, but I don't think it's, I don't think it's an insurmountable problem. I don't think it's a problem that it's a problem yeah, the, I think we have to be aware of it. The ending is so is the ending is rushed. Mm-hmm. Like I understand it's a limited series, but I mean, a released on Netflix, they can decide how long their series their seasons are. Yes, but uh, it needed it needed another episode or two. It, yeah, I th- I think that the from the first episode up through her defeat at Paris, the character development, the overall story arc is much more complex and has a lot more nuance. And then once we kind of hit her like spiral into, you know, whatever she's dealing with, I think a lot of that gets lost. And, I, and especially because it's those characters that are sort of coming to rescue her from herself at that point. We don't really see that development in the same way. Like I would have liked there to have been equal time spent on those on kind of like, you know, what what does Jolene's relationship act with Beth actually look like at this point? I mean, like kind of. They just didn't take their time, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I I think that they did, like, when Jolene came on the scene, there was this, like, quick, like, what's the word when you... Basically, she told her her story very quickly about how she was doing really well and how she had, like, this guy who was... Yeah, exposition. Thank you. Um, She was doing really well, and this um, white guy working at the firm was giving her all this money and the car and everything. And I don't know if that alleviates the problem. I guess maybe I don't completely understand the like the the black savior thing. But to me, I guess I wasn't worried about her because she did make it clear that she was doing well. I had no doubt in my mind that she was going to do well in her career and that giving her this money wasn't going to hurt. Well, so (laughs) the issue becomes Jolene with Jolene, though, is we see that exposition dump as if she had no actual struggles. Which or, historically I don't speaking, I believe that I don't. I, I believe she struggled. I believe she struggled and overcame it. We don't it see and, her talk about and, it. Yeah, yeah. Right. I believe she struggled, That's the overcame it's it, like rose to the top, she, and yes. doesn't matter. Like she, she has this wonderful struggle of 1960s, and we're just going to ignore that because the important thing is how do we get this girl? How do we get the protagonist to to pair? I mean, to Russia. Yeah. Her black friend doesn't matter that much. <laughs> was she supposed Which, to be in her final year of law school? Was that her? No, she no, had she not yet gone to law school. law school. She was saving for uh, law school. She was a paralegal. She, okay, maybe. I okay, wish that there I had been more done that. with the parallels there because it's yeah. like you've seen both. You've, it's basically two women who have tried to deal with their trauma and their circumstances, which are, you know, coming from different backgrounds. But like they end up in the same orphanage. They have they have similar backgrounds to an extent. 
both dealing with different challenges, I really wish there would have been more development of like, this is what Jolene like went through because that's what makes her able to help. Yeah, that's true. Like she Mm -hmm. is the older sister and it's like, but we don't really see her struggles at all. What's her support system? It's just sort of like, she just manifests as like, oh, I'm a paralegal going to law school and also like, I'm the mistress yeah. of a wealthy white dude who yeah. gives me money. And she didn't really like at the school at her school. She didn't have like someone like uh, Mr. Scheibel or that we knew of at least. Yeah. She, yeah. Right. She just, yeah. Right. Yeah. We didn't see any support structure so for her and she was left there even after mm-hmm. Beth was adopted. So yeah, right. we, that really needed to be filled right. in. Jolene's life she's, is only important in as much as it touches okay. Beth's yes. life. Yes. Yeah. And she's arguably like based her. off of where we see she at her end up. Jolene's probably more of the self-made woman, which is why she's able to kind yes. of like kick Beth into shape. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and she I was always can, so strong. Both, I think we can both um, appreciate, you know, the show for what it is, and also, um, you know, uh, be, you know, feel strongly about this, right? Because I think mm-hmm. there is there is always, you know, this kind of but coming that I see, you know, um, or I mm-hmm. often anticipate that, you know, well, this is 1964 or 1968 or whatever. Um, and, you know, um, obviously the racial segregation was there and all of these things. Right. But, you know, black women were full, complex, um, beautiful, complicated people in 1964 as they are in 2020. Right. So like, yes. to me, I think that, you know, as much as I appreciate this show, I think that's something that should be, you know, condemned in the strongest um, terms, because as I was preparing, you know, mm-hmm. for um, our conversation, you know, I, I just glanced over the Queen's Gambit Wikipedia page. Right. And um, it says um, that they're a former, um, I think, war, a former um, world chess champion, Kasparov and chess coach. Uh, Bruce Pandolfini acted as consultant for the show, right? I mean, mm. this is 2020. If you can hire a former world chess champion, you can hire a black studies professional to advise on <laughs> the show, you know, and, 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 yeah, and, and talk point. about how to represent um, black women on the mm-hmm. screen as a complex, beautiful beings, um, just as, um, you know, Beth um, or the actress Anya, um, who are, you know, both flawed and, 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 and um, brilliant and, you know, self-centered and beautiful and, you know, complicated. Right. And I mm-hmm. think I think we just have to call it like it is. Beth mm-hmm. is a character and Jolene is a trope. And I think yes. that is what we see on the screen mm-hmm. um, in white produced um, TV shows and films where black women become these crutches for white women. Right. And it's, a, you know, in, um, you know, decades, centuries old trope in this, you know, in this sense. And I think Jolene, you know, even though she kind of emphasized, I'm not your guardian English, I'm your family, um, mm-hmm. that family language maps neatly on the figure on the man of the mammy mm-hmm. in the terms mm-hmm. of, you know, within the um, dynamics of plantation slavery, where, you know, certain enslaved people were taken into quote unquote the master's house. And, you know, um, because of their obedience, right? Like we can, we can, you know, tra- trace the whole genealogy of that through, you know, films like the Go- gone with the wind. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I do think that, you know, as people thinking about culture, there are certain responsibility and like, calling out that in the harshest ways possible, because I think fairly, you know, frankly, in 2020, Netflix could do better and should do better. Yeah, there should be a season two all about Jolene. 
there well there easily could be and that yes. was the problem they like uh, Kate you even said yes it's a limited series but it's a limited series because Netflix decided it wanted it to be a limited series right it could have been 14 mm-hmm. episodes mm-hmm. like all the Marvel shows had 13 episodes there's no reason why they had to stop at seven they could have it could have once they split you could parallel you, you could parallel their lives if you wanted to um the show producers decided they were interested in one story over the other and that's i I suspect a lot of that had to do with the material that was presented in the original book because at least i haven't read the book but at least like reading some of the summaries and reading some of the articles of people who Mm -hmm. uh, read the book before the series came out like jolene's character in and chibo's a character they're explored more than they are in the show but it seems like not to a substantially greater extent and but that criticism can be levied at the book as well, right? Like, sure, I mean, I'm, absolutely. Not read, but and and also like the show deviates. I mean, like the sh- one of the criticisms from a lot of people who've read the book is that the show deviates quite a bit from a lot of other like major plot points and mm-hmm. characteristics of the book. So it's like there's no reason why you're beholden to this other than you can't be bothered as a as a writer or I, producer. I do want to make it clear that it's not just the race issue that I had this problem with. I mean I like yeah. I I feel like so I feel like they're trying. I feel like the try is not necessarily successful because I that's why I like I think that I think the but we're family speech helps. But it's not mm-hmm. enough. I agree with Anastasia. Um, I think that they don't even try hard enough with Towns. And he's yeah. probably. Mm, yeah. yeah. And Steph, Steph knows me. this because we've talked about it. Towns is the character that I am most going to say annoyed with in the entire series of, of main characters. And it's it's for a weird reason, because he is. He has he, he suffers from much the same problem. He's the magical gay, right? In the same mm-hmm. way that in the same way that uh, that Jolene is the magical Negro. Um, I am okay with a with a woman being hung up on her first love. I'm okay with her first love being a gay guy, and that's why it never worked out. I am not okay with Towns being Beth's first love because I don't know why she loves him. Other than the fact that, like, I know she had a crush on him when she first met him. I'm fine with that. She was like 15, 14, whatever. Sometimes you have a crush on an older boy. I get that. Um, And she sees him again, you know, a few years later, thinks she's going to hook up with him, finds out that he has, like, I guess a boyfriend. It's not. It's not. That's that's the part that bothered me. Yeah. It seems like he's flirting with her. So he was bisexual and was going to hook up with her. Or straight. Well, no, I I saw the boyfriend. I I got that the other guy was his boyfriend. So like you did. Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that he was bi and was going to hook up with her. And then he doesn't, I guess, because he's gay. And then he doesn't see her again for years. And she mentions him briefly when she's with uh, the French girl whose name I forget right now. Um, but she um, and she's like, um, oh, um, I can't be in love with Benny because I'm in love with one boy and his name is Towns. And I'm like, you are. I, I, I had no idea yeah, yeah. because I wasn't given enough of him. I mean, and I'm OK with her being in love with him. It came out of nowhere. Why? Attachments like, to literally every character like that. Like, it's never, it's a little bit yeah. clearer with her adopted mother, like, why? Because they have some things in common, like, that relationship has developed a little bit more. But other than that, like, I think part of it is they rushed a lot of aspects of the show having to do with, the, like, development of characters that aren't Beth. Mm-hmm. And the other aspect of it is the way that they've mm-hmm. written Beth's character. I'm not sure that she actually cares about other people. She's, I thought she was sort of Asperger. Uh, yeah, there's certainly some neuroatypical, yeah. plus her drug problem, right. you know, like, 
about her, but like you were going to say something stuff about like the relationship. Oh yeah. With, uh, with towns, I can see her falling for him because when she first met him, he was the one who kind of was protective is my memory. Am I right about that? He, he seemed like most protect, very protective of her and helped her through the first tournament that she was in. So I can see her developing warm feelings towards him. And he's cute. As a result. Sure. Yeah. He's he, definitely cute. He's, yeah. he's, he's, he's cute attractive and he's dude. the first guy that pays attention mm-hmm. yep. to her and doesn't immediately dismiss her off the bat. Right. Yeah, so I get it, but she doesn't see him for what I imagine. I mean, I didn't go and read and they give us date stamps on the episode. I didn't count, but I think it's like I think it's like a five year gap. Okay, so like I can explain this as her being obsessive with like her Asperger's. (laughs) She is Asperger's ish. Then she is like very obsessed about very specific things, like a few specific things. Chess being one, maybe towns being another that she thinks about. And, you know, (laughs) and he is he is in her mind associated with chess in a positive she way. She mentions so. him again, though. Like, but I mean, until, you can, it makes it can make sense. I'm saying I, they should I have guess. said something. I, I just needed something else, anything else yeah, other than to know that, like, like when she mentions this is in towns to Cleo, that's the first time she's said his name in like three episodes. And if she's obsessed with, I mean, again, if she's obsessed with him, just any hint of that, like, uh, like, um, like I get that she doesn't form attachments very well, but when she's like starts dating Beltic because he's there. It's like, oh yeah, you're going to help me with my chess game. We're hanging out. I guess we might as well fuck, you know, sure. All right. And he's like, well, do you want me to stay here? You can, or you can leave. I don't care. I'm okay with that being her. I'm okay with her developing feelings for Benny that she can't handle over their aloofness. Right. But when, when Cleo asks, you know, are you in love with Benny? And she says, I'm not. Cause I, you know, there's one boy and it's towns. And I'm just like, who that guy? You I guess like that didn't. Yeah, maybe, it was weird to me because I just needed something else. This, yeah, maybe because I watched this entire series in like two days. That didn't bother me as much because like there <laughs> is this scene where they think they're going to hook up. Mm-hmm. Like, and she has this weird like fantasizing moment like afterwards when she's in the hotel room with her mother. Yeah. Like, I kind of, I, I guess from that, I'm like sort of like, okay, this is the thing she thinks about regularly. Like, I, you know, it's not the strongest narrative connection. I like, I'd agree with that, but I'm like, okay, I buy this. Because especially because like, I mean, I think. Wait, can we? Did she? She confess that to the, the the French model before or after she saw him again, and she went to his hotel room and then saw his boyfriend there. Well after. Well after. So well after. She doesn't okay. even meet okay. Cleo until years afterwards. Yeah. It's it's okay. Years later. Yeah, it's, it makes a little more sense then. It's the night before her her yeah. match with French. Yeah, I mean, I I. Give, again, given that it's only seven seven episodes, that was enough for me, especially because, like, to be perfectly honest, like, it's not a like her relationships with people are not what I find like like her romantic relationships are not okay. ones I find particularly interesting in the show, which mm-hmm. is I think in part a weakness of the sort of like end game for uh lack of a better term of the show because I think like when towns reappears, it's a little like well okay like a little Deus Ex Machina kind of like whatever yeah uh and then even like the all of like the ex boyfriends pitching at the end, which I really liked actually like that sort of like the, the the phone call I thought that was I I enjoyed that aspect of the plot a lot, but even then it was just sort of like. Uh, like the entire thing of Russia just felt rushed. That entire like, yeah, it did. I I agree. I think that was part of it. Like like towns. Well, hold on, because I, I think you, you don't skip over because I think the reason the ex boyfriend thing worked, whereas Russia was rushed, towns was rushed. Yeah. The ex boyfriend, specifically Harry and Benny, worked because I know who the fuck these people are. Yeah. Yes. Like I've had time to get to yeah, meet Harry yeah. and Be- and Benny and know how they're different, know yep. why they have problems with her, know why they've forgiven her. 
and know why they care about her. Like, and even with Jolene, Jolene, I had, I mean, it was years ago, but I had two whole episodes right. of them as children. They were together for years I know years. why they care about each yep. other. And that that's yeah. why those work for me. I just want to say, I wonder if we can think about Towns, you know, in, in the context of her trauma as a kind of fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. there's something about, you know, we, we, we began talking about escapism. And I think, I wonder if Towns represents for Bath a kind of um, escapist fantasy. Um, I agree that I also was a little confused. Um, and I remember watching with my partner and I was, you know, kind of like, why does she even like this guy? It doesn't seem like they <laughs> established any kind of, you know, pretty. any kind of bond yeah, or, you know, in, in, in a way that, what's his name? Um, in a way that the person, oh, Beltic, Beltic, mm-hmm. you know, the guy who comes to her and try to help, help her, right? Or Benny, right? And, you know, it sounds, it seems like she is sort of mm-hmm. not even seeing that goodness, right? The good guys that are, you know, in, in the case of Beltic, um, mm-hmm. I read him as the guy who was, you know, genuine and um, caring uh, for her, right? And so she doesn't seem to be able to receive that. And she's kind of caught up mm-hmm. in this fantasy mm-hmm. of her own mind about this love that, you know, she developed with this person um, that, you know, we didn't really see develop in any meaningful ways. And so I'm wondering if, um, even if not perhaps not well executed in terms of narrative or, or plot structure, mm-hmm. if that kind of symbolizes um, some sort of escapism for her, and whether when she meets him in Moscow, where she's able to kind of accept, you know, his explanation, become friends with him, whether that kind of marks, you know, Beth's own coming into maturity. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm also particularly interested to hear y'all's thoughts about mm-hmm. the resolution of the series, kind of the last. Um, the last scene where she, you know, rejects the invitation to go to the White House to meet the president and turns around and goes into this um, small park with um, elderly, you know, men um, who are playing chess and kind of, you know, goes goes there. So to me, Towns um, ties into this whole narrative of her coming into herself, coming into, um, you know, her maturity. And so um, I wonder if that speaks to y'all as well. I think with Towns, I think a large part of it, maybe the biggest part of it is just because he happened to be the first, the first one to step mm-hmm. in. And he was obviously very cute. <laughs> and he stepped in and helped her like, you know, with her first tournament. And I think she probably thought about him a lot. And so that kind of, you know, just with your first. Once. huh? If I'd even seen it once, maybe I, mean, I, I agree with you. That's what it's probably supposed yeah. to say. Yeah, there could have been more weird to me because. But yeah, it's possible, though. I, mean, I think you know, you can do that yeah yeah i just i just wish i didn't have to fill in that gap i i I think you're probably right i think stephanie's explanation is exactly what i'm Mm -hmm. supposed to feel i just yeah you don't because i'm just like where you're not a young woman in love (laughs) not anymore (laughs) no i but yeah no i i mean it's not that it's not that there have been people in my life that i've been hung up on right but it's still this is not a life this is a story on television give me that narrative dot maybe it's the editor's fault right right and i I just and i i just needed i needed a little something more um because here's here was my problem with it um and because we were we started to talk about it and i don't want to you know steph you started to mention it and katya started to mention it too the relationship with cleo right Mm -hmm. i am perfectly okay with best relationship with cleo as it is because cleo's not important cleo is somebody who is fun She's pretty. Um, 
and like I can drink with her. We can have sex and that can be over with. Right. Like I Cleo's not important. She's my second least favorite character. on the No, show. I, and, I, and, I, and I think you're going to say I, I actually want you to say why. But I'm saying as a as a plot device, Cleo is not important to Beth other than the fact that she is a good time in the two scenes when she's around and she almost ruins her life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, that's why. Um, <laughs> like I like I like I, I get that. Right. Just seemed very selfish. It, it, it was. Just wait until like she wins, and then you know do what you need to do. <laughs> but my problem, my problem is the narrative gives Cleo as much reason to exist and be a part of 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 Beth's life as Towns. So I need to feel like he's more important for reasons other than because Towns is the one who happens to help at the end, whereas Cleo never shows back up. Towns ends up being a good guy. Cleo ends up being a bad girl. <laughs> But like it could be, but but she says it's not till after the hotel incident where she says that Towns was her one true love. So maybe part of it also, in addition to him being like the first which hotel it's no, it's before they sleep together. She would she tells she tells her she tells her Towns was her true love. Um no, after after Towns, after she sees Towns together. Um so I guess I was thinking another reason why she might think of him as her first love in addition to or as her love in addition to being the first one. Is that he was like, she realized somehow, and this can be like a side discussion, that he was unattainable when she went with him to his hotel and he was taking photos of her in a very kind of like, to me, seemed very romantic way. And Mm -hmm. I would like, yeah, I would kind of fall in love with him if I were her, too. So I can see that happening. Um, And then somehow she did make the connection that the guy in the hotel room wearing the nice short shorts was actually his his boyfriend and Mm -hmm. so she realized that oh this guy is you know he's actually gay and he's unattainable so I can see her yearning for that when she her whole life has been like loss and has been loss of people and is that's like in her the core of her trauma has been the car accident where her mother was killed so that can be like another psychological component and reason for her to Mm -hmm. sort of yearn for towns Mm -hmm. that she didn't have like associated with anyone else who's very accepting like for instance um the shoot the guy with the, with the um with the duster benny benny yes he was like always there for her and she didn't have that same kind of like yearning for like going after feeling so it kind of makes sense maybe in that way mm-hmm. also okay so this is a question for stephanie and the thought is not fully formulated so apologies but like when um beth runs into towns for the second time there is that sort of realization of like oh i'm into this guy but it's not going to work out for some fairly apparent reasons And we don't really hear about him again until Cleo kind of like prompts her. And the way at least I read that scene initially, and I'd have to go back and look at it to see if it it still it still like feels that way, is that she has she might still have these like this crush, these latent feelings. But like, I wonder if there's something to do maybe with like her mental state and the obsessiveness that somehow in the act of prompting and maybe realizing she doesn't really have anybody else. She's just like that one. Does that make sense? Okay. Like, is there something about this? Like, yeah, we were talking like earlier about like, obsessive tendencies. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It would be embarrassing. And also just like, I wonder if there's something to do with the obsessive tendencies that like, because I think there is, uh, even though Cleo is a plot device for, to a large extent, like she is also like the first woman we really see in best adult life that she like admires. Like she admires the fact that she's a model. She's yeah. envious of the clothing and like, especially being, I mean, they're both very feminine people, but I think like, Beth admires like Cleo's particular brand of femininity and particular sexuality. The free spiritness mm-hmm. of her. Yeah, she's Cleo is very upfront about everything. 
She says what she means. Like, I understand why Stephanie doesn't like her because she. It's just that one action. Right, right. Other than that, she's she's good. And that's the part that makes Cleo feel like a plot device. Because I'm like, it even didn't really feel like in character. Like, Cleo doesn't initially come across as a a character that's out to screw people. Right, right, right. Or even thoughtless. Yeah. Well, yeah, because she's not. Like, I don't think Cleo's thoughtless up until that point. Cleo Cleo is. She respects intelligence. Yeah. She has like this, like kind of um yeah she says i don't even know the rules fetish of chess, for but, intelligence yeah i don't know the rules for ch- of chess but i love that they're good at it is what she says uh-huh. about all the boys that she's you know she's because she know, has the prettiness and she, she wants the intelligence right. part she's too to be whole or Benny's something former lover she's polly and but and dating the two other guys whose names i like they're indistinguishable and their names don't matter right but she's mm-hmm. dating the two other guys and she's free-spirited and she you know she calls beth because she clearly wants from the very first meeting she clearly wants to sleep with beth and i'm fine with all that i'm fine with beth exploring her sexuality with her it did seem it it, it, it does was come a plot across device it, it yeah. comes across as selfish device-y. of no you need to come you need to come be with me now mm-hmm. i don't care that the most important day of your life is tomorrow i'm in the hotel lobby right now it does seem selfish mm-hmm. and i understand why that's off-putting and it might be more forgivable if Cleo had more character, but she's only in those two scenes, right? So but she made it seem like she didn't know when she was leaving Paris. Well, well she didn't. I believe that. I, well, I believe that about her bohemianness, right? I, but like, yeah. you need more, and that's why I said like she's exactly the same as Towns in that it's just these two, it's these two little interactions that you have with this person, and with Towns, it turns out better because because he does the right thing at the end, whereas Cleo uh-huh. essentially fucks her over. So it's interesting while y'all were talking, um, I looked up Cleo because I kind of forgot how she looked like. And, you know, just like to put the the, the, the image to the name. Um, and it's very interesting. And I wonder what y'all think, um, given this conversation. So there's apparently a fan theory um, that says that Cleo um, was a spy sent by the Russians. Um, yeah. and so it's, that's interesting. And, you know, yeah. And so a part of me feels a little, I was just like, oh, that's, a, that's an interesting, you know, and, and while you were talking, I was kind of skimming, um, this article that I saw, uh, when looking up her, um, her photo. And, you know, so it's basically kind of speculating that Cleo appears once um, Beth has sobered up um, and, you know, is more kind of um, in a better state, right, to kind of sabotage her uh, before her uh, big um, tournament uh, with um, Borgakov. I I think I'm I'm messing up Mm -hmm. um, the, Mm -hmm. the name. Um, of the chess player uh but yeah so mm-hmm. th- that was very interesting as i was um listening to y'all talk about you know kind of her motive <laughs> and like why would she do that and also kind of conflicted because um one of the things i've also been thinking about is kind of the portrayal of uh the ussr and um russians yeah. um in mm-hmm. in this particular series um and so i grew up um in a russian family in eastern europe so a lot of my okay. own uh, genealogy is from ussr soviet russia and so and so um i was you know um, I thought that the TV show did a better um, job than most uh, American film um, about that. And not to kind of not to um, not to um, deflect from the discussion of Cleo. But I just thought mm-hmm. it was very interesting that fans are now speculating that she's a Russian spy. I think that's she was the best really... spy ever if she was a spy. <laughs> well, and that's, that's another thing of like, I mean, the when I'm thinking back and again, I have to watch it again. I think that's an interesting theory. And I don't think it's baseless. I mean, there is. We we'll like, an article in the show notes. There's a, there's an article um, in the Insider from Cameron Fro that we will we will link to in the show notes about that. I but Katya, yeah. continue, please. Because because I'm just like what I'm 
thinking back and, and like, I don't know. I, that was not something that initially occurred to me on the first watch through, but I was crying through most of the show, so that might be why. Uh, also, I was freaking out over all of the dresses and be like, ooh, which one can I make? Uh, so I was distracted. Uh, also, I want most of Cleo's clothes, too. So anyway, mm-hmm. but like, because I could see like, because there's a difference between Paris and Russian matches is like she's literally instructed not to drink because Russian spies in the second one by the U.S. Yeah. government. Um, mm-hmm. So I could see like, I could see that being a reason. I don't think the show does a good. I mean, as we've kind of talked about, like the show doesn't always do a good job of explaining things. No, um, no. I don't know how much like I don't. Yeah, I, I think that th- that is a definite plot hole of like why Cleo does what she does. I initially in the first watch through assumed it was because there was like some kind of jealousy there or like because really? Cle- yeah, because she and huh. she's she's upset that Benny is no longer in love with her. Like when that original conversation, there's like a, a, a mm, that's more plausible. There's, okay. a conversa- there's a conversation that they have briefly where like Cleo looks longingly at Benny of like, oh, he isn't in love with me. And I think like she. I might be reading right. the conversation, but she implies it's because she's not as she's not smart. See, I read it exactly the opposite way, and, I, and there's where so I don't. I or also she's trying don't to get back at Benny through bed. I mean, I think that there are myriad possibilities that could explain yeah. it, but the show doesn't do the work to explain yes. it. And, and and here and here's where it's empty because I, I, I think I'm going to be curious about Stephanie and Anastasia's views of this too because I feel the exact same way as Katya in that I don't think that um, Cleo's a spy, but I also don't think Cleo really wants Benny back. I don't think she was trying to prove a point. I 100% believe her when she says, no, me and Benny is in the past. It's fine. You know, you do what you do. You do what you do. I Because I, I think she's smart enough. I think Cleo's smart enough to know that Beth is not in love with Benny. She says, you know, Benny can only love himself. That's fine. Right. Um, I think Cleo, that, yeah. yeah, I think Cleo accepts that. I think Cleo is just so free spirited. So yes. and see, know, that's I am what night- actually happens. Is yeah. She just doesn't. She I don't think care. she's trying to screw Beth over. Like, I think no. that's a possible reading of the show, but I think it's just literally like, this is what she does all the time. Yes. And like yes. the fact that Beth yep. has a giant chess match the next day. Right. Probably doesn't she really likes Beth a lot. her. Mm-hmm. I think she likes Beth a lot. I think she, I think she sincerely enjoys hanging out with her. She's sincerely attracted yeah. to her and she's like, let's go get drunk and have sex. Mm-hmm. And yeah. the fact that, the ramifications of what happens six hours after that are completely foreign to Cleo in my mind. Uh, she's very impossible. Yeah, and impossible. it's, yeah, it's just never, the from, And again, her character is not super developed, so we don't know this. But like my impression of her character is like that is a situation that Cleo has never experienced. Like she has yeah. never experienced like, holy shit, a world life changing day is tomorrow. Because she kind of mm-hmm. talks about like, oh, right. I'm just a model like we just kind of like I just kind of like float through things mm-hmm. right and I think um, and I believe that I, I mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. believe yeah. so I'm curious as to what, what you two think um, Stephanie and us yeah I agree it's completely unplanned and it's just her like giving in to her like desires at the time yes mm-hmm. I see that but I, yeah it still makes me mad the <laughs> KGB <laughs> thing is interesting yeah interestingly for me I think that um, scene when they're I think um, in the lobby of a hotel or in the bar and you know, it's. It, it, I personally didn't have a lot of anger with Cleo, mm-hmm. but um, I actually had um, anger at Beth. It's almost I was just like, oh, what are you doing? You know, you know, you have this match um, yeah. tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? You, you yeah. know, you have this competition like, you know, and so I think for, for me as someone, um, I guess, um, who has been interested in psychology and healing and, you know, what it means to take responsibility for yourself. 
for me, it was a moment of like, no, 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 Beth, this is your moment to take responsibility. And so I see Cleo, you know, we don't really know much about her. She's kind of like more of a, you know, um, mysterious character, I guess, in some ways. And so, you know, to me, Cleo, most of all, represents kind of this temptation for Beth, right? And I think mm-hmm. in that particular moment when Cleo offers her a drink, I think, um, you know, and Beth tries to resist, um, you know, she has a choice whether she, you know, uh, doesn't drink knowing that she has a, you know, um, a drug, drug abuse or alcohol abuse problem and, you know, and goes um, and sort of prepares for um, her competition or she gives into this temptation. So I think um, that actually that particular scene was kind of what stood out to me the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess to be fair to Beth, she did initially like different. they have two conversations. Oh, like initially she did tell Cleo that she didn't want to meet her, that she had this She said, What important- about tomorrow? Yeah, and yeah. And then she came down later anyway. Yeah, yeah. Because I think like Cleo kind of guilted her, is my impression. So. Well, Cleo said, Well, I mean, maybe I might be in town tomorrow, I might not, but I'm gonna drink here. Yeah, I mean it was but ultimately her it, responsibility. It was, yeah. it was also very like a set up as a well now or never kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well and, and to be fair, I mean, not fair, it's, it's, you know, it is Beth's responsibility, but Beth is an image is immature and a drug addict right. at that point. Yep, alcoholist. <laughs> so, Come down to the bar. So, you Come know, on. So it, she hasn't had yeah. anything to drink in Russia up until that point. Well, no, it's Paris. Oh, sorry, Paris. Yeah. yeah. yeah it's, so, uh-huh. you know, it's like, like, I understand it. You know, she just, she gave into temptation. It is a human moment. I, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, believe, was, I don't think it needs to be so sinister as that she's a spy. No. no. Yeah. And I think, mm. I mean, in some ways also like, the, it, it is a plot device in the sense of like it would have been a worse show if she just beats the Russians the first time she plays against yeah, them. That's true. Like, it would have been device. kind of a crap TV show. Okay. There yeah, needed to be yeah. something. Okay, we can, like, it was important. <laughs> it was important for the plot that like she loses that match not because she's not good at chess, but because she allows like her crutches right. basically to destroy mm-hmm. that day. Right. Because the first time she loses uh, to Borgov, it's because Borgov is just better. Mm-hmm. Like she, she loses in Mexico. Yeah. She and then she loses again in Paris because because she's high, you know. Um, and she says she would have lost anyway. And Benny is basically like, I don't know mm-hmm. about that, <laughs> you know. Like, uh, and, and then and then so it's literally it's part of her. I think it's part of her progression and growth. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you know her character as an underdog, yeah. right? Like we as yes. an audience member, we need her to lose, right? Like. You know, okay. I, I remember this moment when, when we were watching my partner and I was just like, oh, it was almost like, of course, she's going to lose. But she, she has to lose in order to fulfill this promise of genius that, mm-hmm. you know, rises up to the challenge that overcomes, you know, I mean, this is the kind of very dominant narrative, you know, that we can think about in terms of like the American dream or just like the, 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 the ethos of success. Right. It's like you fall, you get up again. And so like she. In terms of the narrative, she, she, she we need her um, to lose uh, all those times in order to like continue um, cheering her on and continue wanting her um, mm-hmm. to 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 become you know the world champion. And interestingly for me, it's not really her final uh, success, her final victory that was the most important. Is is the way that you know she then returns to these. Um, elderly men um playing you know um in a random neighborhood in russia which to me <laughs> signified a kind of return to um mr scheibel mm-hmm. well she starts it's it's like she's it's the return of mr scheibel and it's also like she's playing chess for fun right yeah something that she hasn't done since she was a little girl but it always yeah. seemed like she would even she would read the books of, of her own volition which is 
That's something that I really admired about her. Yeah. It's her, her own volition, but it's always in pursuit of like the next goal. Like it's always in pursuit of the next title. And also like, monetary. Yes. Like it's too. not that she had, like she did. Well, she kind of does have to play chess to survive at a certain, yes. at that point. Like mm-hmm. it is how she's basically funding her life. And she, to me, I guess for most of the, the show, like she is invested in chess. She is fascinated by chess. Like I'm not questioning that, but she is playing chess in order to be the best. Mm-hmm. Like she is chasing the, like as soon as she figures out what a grandmaster is at that first tournament, she's basically like, Oh, I want to be that. Right. Like, that's the thing. And I'm not saying she doesn't enjoy chess along the way, but that like, it's, it's always instrumental to get to that thing. And then once she's, she's there, she's done it. It's like, well, cause there is that one scene with the Russian boy. It's like, well, what do you do once you become grand champion? And the boy doesn't understand her question. Yeah. I mean, she's mm-hmm. also kind of asking herself that like mm-hmm. what happens. And this is part of why I don't think this is a second season, because I don't, know that she has anything right well all she can do is fall right like which is which is the problem with the success of rocky movies right like like he like the the, in rocky he has to just keep going through you know he fails the second the first time he beats apollo the second time and now you're just getting bigger and bigger magical challenges that they just keep throwing in front of him up until up until they read they essentially reboot the series with creed with him being an old man who's mentoring somebody else but you just need to just keep throwing more and more deadly people in front of her. And that becomes boring. So I don't think there's a second season either. I think the answer to the little boy's question is, look, you know, if you want to survive this, you know, you have to find something that is meaningful to you. Borgov sort of we sort of see old Beth in Borgov, like we're in and, mm-hmm. and, and, and the, the other guy too, the other grandmaster. With oh, the, the hair. hair. He was my fi- he was my second favorite. Yeah, they, um, like they they basically are just sort of they have become students of the game because Borgov's not a bad guy. No, you know, he's just no. he's, yeah, he's like, I'm a student of the game. I respect your youth and I, I respect your ability you've earned my respect and i think beth has gotten to this point in that final scene i don't think it's partly it's returning to Scheibel, but also i think it is literally she's not playing to get better she's not get, playing to become a grandmaster no one in this park poses a threat to her at all she's going to kick these old men's ass but like it's not even about she didn't announce that she was going there she walks down there and it's just like i get to just sit down and enjoy a game of chess mm-hmm. like something i've not done since i was 15 i get to enjoy well, she's, she's playing a game of chess possibly for the first time not to prove herself because even when she's right. playing with shibel she's playing with shibel to prove that she can do it right right and when she and when she's playing with benny and and cleo's two boyfriends like i wish i could remember their name i'm too lazy can't remember i'm names. too lazy to look them up and they don't matter yeah the other guys. <laughs> she's playing with she's playing three games at the same time you know, of speed chess, which she's bad at. And she's yeah. like, no, no, we're going to play it because I need to be, you know, because after Benny kicks her ass at speed chess and he says, it's it's a trick, it's a different game. Don't worry about it. And she's like, no, I have to be good at this too. So I'm playing not to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. I'm playing to prove that I can learn. Yeah, she's be- a learning yeah. goal. Yeah. Yep. And, and yeah. so I'm so I, I appreciate the difference there. It is sort of magical how she gets there, right? Like she just yeah, sort of. I was about of, to say. Yeah. Yeah. I have passed the final threshold. Um, this is the end of my monomythic journey. So now I am Zen master. Yeah. Beth that's, that that part where she was sort yeah. of magical <laughs> in getting and translating her. So I'm not sure what the difference between slower pace. I mean, they do move rather quickly, even in the regular games. So can't be too much of a speed difference. Chess? Yeah, speech chess. Oh, uh, you should check line in it. It's, mm. it's, but especially versus a bunch of people. Yeah, it's yeah. just based on pattern recognition, I assume, even yeah. more so. 
in speed chess. Um, mm. They're they're like they're like um, I, I, like you can play online and you've got like five seconds per move or something mm-hmm. like that. It's uh, ridiculous. Nope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like you're, you're, li- you're literally just like trying it's, to. Yeah, it's like the chess equivalent of Twitch gaming. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's insanity. So part of the reason I want to talk about this show to to sort of transition into this is because of the fashion. Regular listeners know I'm the sewing person. Do a lot of vintage sewing. The sewing world lost its collective mind when this show came out. <laughs> I've already made a dress inspired by the show. It, there's there's an entire online threads of all the sewists. Oh, you should post a picture, by the way. That would be really cool. Oh, she, she, it's yeah, on yeah. my Instagram, oh. which I'll plug at the end of the show. Oh, okay. uh, and the reason I want to talk about this is because when I was researching for the show, one of the complaints I saw from people who've read the book, um, which, as we know, the book and the show, whether one is always better than the other, or and different. It's usually well, people. But here's the thing: if you read almost always, if you've read the book before and you see the show or the movie afterwards, you think the book is better because that was the story you were first invested in. Right. Because nothing, can match, nothing can match the picture of Beth Harmon that exists in your head that you yeah. read and before. Your first exactly. Life. And they're different mediums, and like you need the like, stories do need to suit the medium. So one of the main cr- criticisms I was seeing repeated in a lot of places is in the book. Uh, Beth is described as sort of a plain Jane. The thing that makes her attractive is she's brilliant. In the show, Beth is obviously very stunning. (laughs) And people were basically complaining that having Beth be physically attractive, and especially the interest in fashion, which as I gather was not part of the book, that was undermining the character for them. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I take issue with this is one, the, te- the like television is a different medium than a book. Mm-hmm. Hollywood being what it is, like an acting being what it is, you are likely to have like even a, a quote unquote plain actress is often <laughs> superhumanly attractive. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Charlize Theron. Uh, yeah, yes. Charlize Theron. Right. Hollywood beauty is going to, Anna Taylor-Joy is going to be attractive in this role. And yes, I get that the counter is, well, why aren't we just making movies about movies and TV shows about less attractive people? And it's like, well, here's the thing, watch them. I think had you, you fallen into the trope of the nerdy, smart girls unattractive, it would have yes. been a worse show. I agree. And because we actually don't, and it has to do with this idea of who is a genius and who gets to be a genius. We still deride feminine women, women who are interested in clothes and in makeup and in fashion as being anti-intellectual. And actually, and I see that in a lot of the criticism is mm-hmm. that a woman is a lot of these critics, many of whom were women, actually mm-hmm. saying that, like, oh, you can't possibly be interested in clothes and glamour and also be a genius. You only have like, so many character points to spend, Katya. So you have to choose. Do you want to be pretty or do you want to be smart? <laughs> well, and they actually make fun of this. And in in, in the show actually kind of points this out, which I actually found that moment really interesting is when she's in an interview. I forget which game it was for. But uh, she's in an interview and people ask you like, oh, well, you know, many of your critics in the chess world basically say how, you know, how could you possibly be you're too glamorous essentially to play chess? I think it's actually heading into her Paris match. Yes. Um, Or I think it's actually before that because her mom's still alive, isn't she? Yes. Uh, And her rebuttal is basically I mean, I I forget the exact quote off the top of my head, but it's essentially like, oh, well, I I can do two things at once. Like I can be a complex person. I don't have to just be one thing, especially response. And I think that's actually really important. Because when we're talking about, I mean, Steph, you mentioned the top of the show of like, will this, you know, change who who plays chess and who eventually becomes like a, a, a chess champion or whatever. And I'm like, I think that's an important message because so often smart women in movies and television, you the message is you can't get both. You can't 
be stereotypically feminine. You can't be high femme in the way that she in the way that Beth is and also be smart. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's that I found really powerful, actually. It's interesting because as you know, someone who does intellectual work and is also feminine presenting, right? I actually, that didn't even cross my mind when watching. Like it just, it kind of, you know, those, I mean, I I can totally see why, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of glamour and fashion um, and kind of raw intellect, which is, you know, especially a chess um, game that, you know, requires logic, which is always already coded as masculine, right? I can see how those can be, to be, two can be clashing together um, for other viewers, right? Who are kind of committed to a particular like one dimensional narrative of either genius or, you know, logical genius or femininity. Um, but I was also interested in thinking about, or at least the way in which I read it, um, to me in the show, glamour fashion was also, um, a narrative of social mobility. Um, I think, I think, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in some ways, you know, in, in, in written text, um, in a novel, um, there are certain things, um, that you can describe, um, in greater detail, right. To show the person's kind of, um, class journey. Um, mm-hmm. I think, I think, you know, when we think about, um, the clothes that Beth wears in an orphanage, which are like really gray, really simple, right. Like, you know, no it's, just, it's just like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just miserable, right. Like the mm-hmm. whole, the whole aesthetic of the orphanage is miserable. And, uh, to me, you know, her glamour, her kind of lug- luxury, um, in terms of, you know, her lifestyle of her or her appearance kind of also signaled to her kind of mm-hmm. being uplifted from that uh, basement of the orphanage. Um, yeah, so, yeah. So that's interesting because that's my that's how I perceived it at first. We've talked about in previous episodes the way that like fashion is important to how we often craft our own identities. And I, th- mm-hmm. I think the show like portrays that in a really interesting way, because like the first time she wins a chess match, the first two yes. things she's excited to buy is a chess set. And a new dress. And a new dress. Because mm-hmm. I, I was going to say that exact same thing. Just building exactly off of what Anastasia said. In a book, I can give you a whole chapter about Beth's, or or five chapters. Like, I have unlimited space. It's just how much paper do I want to spend? You know, I can mm-hmm. give you all the mental um, deconstruction of how she's feeling about class mobility that I feel like writing. In the TV series, it is exactly keyed out in the scene that, that Katya just explained. Mm-hmm. She wins that first tournament and she goes and she buys a cheap chess set. It's her first one that she actually owns after all these years of playing. She owns her own set and then she's as almost overlooking it. You see her decide, I am buying myself a new dress. This is something and it's not talked about. It's just like it's several episodes later where she admits that she's addicted to fashion, right? Like before Mm -hmm. then she just gets progressively more glamorous from match to match because you never see it. You see her buy that that first dress, but then when they fly and you don't see her do it when they fly to um i want to say cincinnati is where the second tournament is um when her and her and her second mother fly to cincinnati um she's wearing saddle shoes because she was always embarrassed by her ugly shoes from the other girls so she's got nice shoes on and then it's like two or three matches later when she cuts her hair for the first time and so Uh yes i understand the criticism that people might have of well why does successfulness mean you need to be more glamorous it doesn't you don't need to but we're telling a visual story and we have escaped 
through several scenes of exposition of what's going on through her class mobility, just through her gradual shift in appearance. Cause it's not, it's not immediate. It, it is, it is gradual after every match. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I went back and checked. She gets successively more glamorous to the point when, when they're in Mexico before her mom dies, you know, mm-hmm. she's wearing clearly designer dresses mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to, cause that first dress that she buys, like it's that from, first one, yeah, that she's, it's, it's, it's basically from an expensive department store. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's also it's, the, the first thing she buys. It's the first piece of clothing she's ever owned. that isn't secondhand. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. That's exactly it. It's not, it's, it, it's, it's glamorous to her. It's glamorous to I'm 15 years old. And I, I bought this with my own money that I earned through my brain. It is, yeah. that is, that is a massively important moment to, you know, look what I have achieved. I was literally sleeping, you know, and the other thing is when she first moves into the house, when she first gets adopted, I get this whole room to myself. Mm-hmm. Like these moments. That's are, really cute. Yeah. These moments matter to her and they, and they mm-hmm. sort of, um, I, so there's something about something about our, our life that I'll, expl- that, uh, that I'll explain. Like Steph yells at me sometimes because she's like, <laughs> well, no, cause, cause she's like, you own too many clothes. Why do you own so many clothes? He owns twice as many clothes as I do. At he, least he probably owns more clothes than I do. And I make mine. Mm. Yeah. And, and I, and I own, I own lots of clothes. I own lots of shoes. Why? Because I grew up really poor. I grew up extremely poor. Did anyone make fun of you for your clothes? Did yeah, you of course I did. Oh, yes. Okay. Kids are horrible. Yeah. I thought and, that and, was really the main impetus yeah, for her. Yeah. But, uh, but of course, yeah. When I, when I was, I mean, and I wasn't poor, I wasn't super poor my entire life, but like growing up and like, um, like and I wore third and fourth hand clothes in elementary school, you know, like stuff that I inherited from my cousin who inherited them from our other cousin who inherited them from our other cousin. And when I was done, I passed them down to my brother, right? Like this is, that's how things worked in my family. Like the only thing that you had were shoes because shoes fall apart and those were never nice shoes or expensive shoes. So yeah, like now I can buy my own clothes. If I decide I want um, a nice pair of jeans or a nice suit or whatever, I go to the store and I buy it. It's great. You know, and, and right. so that's meaningful in a way that now uh, am I on a Taylor joy glamorous? No, but I understand. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, I mean, I wish no. I was, you know, but, hey, you but could be. I just think that's the story that's being, I associate with that. And yeah. I think even if you're not the person who, you know, again, I, I went from, you know, growing up on welfare to a PhD program, right? So like, that's yeah. a, that's a long variance through being, you know, I was a software designer for a while. So I've had, I, I've had a large life transition. So maybe you can't identify with exactly me, but I think telling that story visually just through little things like, oh my God, she looks stunning. That girl was in an orphanage two episodes ago. I know. I I don't normally like appreciate clothes, but I really did for this series, I have to say. And I I think the other thing that I think to me also bridges kind of the narrative of the, of what sounds like the book is with the, what's in the show is I keep thinking of, uh, so for those of you who are interested in burlesque, you will probably know who Dita Von Tees is. Absolutely. Oh, I know. Possibly mm-hmm. the most glamorous woman on the planet. Like, <laughs> definitely up there. Up yeah. there. Mm-hmm. And there's an interview, I forget uh, how long ago it was, but there's an interview where she's talking about when she's a young girl looking at pictures of like extremely glamorous women in magazines and basically saying, I could never be as glamorous as that because that version of like completely natural beauty where you're just like naked, no makeup, blah, 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 which I mean, they are working makeup and also Photoshop exists. But anyway, <laughs> she was talking about, she's like, she, she saw that as a young woman as a kind of beauty she could never attain. And she, part of the reason she was interested in vintage fashion and course history is she's like, that is constructed beauty. She was like, that, that is a kind of beauty that does not interest. And we actually talk about some of the corset show is like historically their beauty standards 
could you could modify your body in different ways to fit beauty standards in a way that 21st beauty standards it is more complicated relationship which is not to say one is better than the other they're just different mm-hmm. um but dita von Teese is like you can construct a glamorous identity in you through vintage fashion in a way that she didn't see it see in contemporary fashion and i think part of what we see in the queen's gambit is also that like beth is never unattractive because hello I'm because Anna Taylor Joy is attractive right but she becomes progressively more attractive because she is crafting an identity mm-hmm. it's also she's constructing it in a way that is her first real experience of agency and chess and fashion are always tied from that moment where the, the two first things she buys is a chess set and a dress mm-hmm. like no. as she's crafting her genius she's also crafting her aesthetic persona I saw them as like more intertwined. I kind of saw her fashion as like aiding her confidence and she really wanted to be confident in chess. So that's kind of my impression, but maybe they were too independent. No, I I think you can read it either way. I think they are intertwined. Like they're, they're, they're two different ways of her constructing different aspects of her, like who she is. I think there's also something to be said. I think I think I agree with Katya um, completely around this whole like crafting of persona, crafting of oneself. But I'm also interested in thinking about why audiences uh, might be so kind of resistant to kind of fashion and luxury, because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm thinking about it not just as appearance, because um, I think she also invests in like redesigning the house and buying, yeah. you know, furniture, et cetera. Um, and kind of making her, you know, lift space uh, beautiful. Uh, but I also think there's something around uh, pleasure that we um, code as like frivolous and self-indulgent. Um, and I and I wonder if there's something that is kind of intention with narratives of success um, that kind of requires suffering. Right. And I, I, I think that as a character, Beth suffers internally. Yet at the same time, you know, as soon as um, her and Alma kind of said, Alma, her um, adoptive mother, set on this path of, you know, success and one win after the other, you know, they are very um, indulgent in these luxuries, right? Like hotels and um, dresses and uh, martinis or, you know, um, yeah, drinks. And so um, I also wonder if there's, Something about them um, being, you know, subjects who are coded as feminine, like indulging in those things, because mm-hmm. I don't necessarily um, expect the same sort of reading of, you know, a chess player, a man who's sitting, you know, with his legs spread wide with a glass of whiskey, you know, yeah. that costs whatever and a cigar that costs like, I don't know, hundred dollars, you know. And so so I think there's something around in the way that we are perhaps uncomfortable with women taking up space in that way and women claiming pleasure luxury for themselves. Because I think part of us in that story of an underdog um, requires some sense of suffering. And I think that's, you know, that's how we, 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 we frame um, hard work. Right. Um, And I, you know, I I think, I think even myself, right. As I'm critiquing that, I think, Part of me also watching the show was just like, oh, Beth, like you're just like spending money, <laughs> you know, and I was kind of yeah. just like, you're 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 winning. But like, is this really the quote unquote responsible thing to do? Well, I, I remember having the same impression because it's like she just basically the moment where there's, there's this that she has to make this decision of like how she gets to Russia, essentially. And she turns down the church group because they basically want her to do a rah-rah America thing and also Christianity. 
which she just mm-hmm. is like, no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, like, I kind of was going like, isn't all the money you just spent renovating your house probably would have gotten you to Russia? Right. But I had that moment. I'm like, but wait a second. Like, it also was like, okay, but that also feels like a very like classist reaction of like mm-hmm. placing a value judgment of like, no, actually the money she's just spent to kind of like, I mean, I saw like her interior redecorating actually very mm-hmm. much as a like, this is how I'm going to cope with what's going on in my life, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether it's responsible or not. And I'm like, no, actually that's a, like, whether the individual purchases of the, like the things don't matter. Mm-hmm. It's the process of like saying like, I'm going to take control of this house. And especially like she talks mentioned several times, like taking care of something where she's never yeah. really taken care of something, I think intentionally prior to that. And like, it is, even though it, on the surface, it seems very like kind of frivolous, I think to a lot of viewers and like, including I had my initial reaction, even though I'm very much like, yes, buy the velvet couch. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was nice. <laughs> I mean, who doesn't want a velvet couch? I want a velvet couch, but there, like, I, I do think like, we're like, it's, it's hard to simultaneously, I find it difficult to simultaneously be like, okay, there's this, there's this tension between consumer culture being this kind of cathartic, like way of, of dealing with her problems. Not only consumer culture, I think it ties back to what Anastasia was saying about like femininity, because I think mm-hmm. that there's this weird thing where uh, I'm going to push back on what Anastasia said in order to agree with her slightly, because that's <laughs> weird because I think I think I don't think it's fair to say that men don't do it. I mean, clearly I do. That's the, that's Steph's criticism of me is that I, you know, I, I revel in my class mobility by buying shit. Right. Mm-hmm. That's like, oh, I meant to say like, that you wouldn't be the red the same way. Like it's not to say right, that you right. don't do it. Exactly. But like, because yeah. because I think that what people miss, like not you, not us, but I think um, the people who are complaining about like how constructed Beth's beauty is in this show versus what they perceive it in the book is they're ignoring how much of a fucking cartoon character Benny is. Benny is a scrawny chess player <laughs> who's turned himself into John fucking Wayne. Yep. And, he's awesome. and I, and, and I think he's amazing, but that is a completely like that is a, and he wears the same outfit in every scene, like for over the course of several years. And I was like, dude made a choice that he's wearing a leather duster and a, and a cowboy hat. And he he's looks insane. like, he's living in New York and he's hanging out in Cincinnati. Why are you dressed like that? Because that's a, that's a visual choice. And I don't think we criticize men the same way that, we, which I think is what Anastasia well, was saying. Yeah. We don't, yeah. Like aesthetic eccentricities. I think like to go to Anastasia's point, like we, when we're talking about narratives of genius, we often see in men aesthetic like eccentricity as a marker of genius. Like I remember mm-hmm. uh, Humphrey Davy, who's like a famous like genius chemist from the 19th century, like was famous for wearing velvet suits to perform experiments. Mm-hmm. Like we have like ongoing cultural narratives where like men, like even if it's like not necessarily positive, it's not like they look good. It's just like the guy who wears his, you know, wears the same T-shirt every day. Kind of He's thing. Got a thing. Like, look at him. He's got a thing right. going. Like, yeah. in, in, in kind of the same way that Benny does. Like I imagine mm-hmm. Benny owns two of the exact same shirt, probably not washed as frequently as maybe I would like based off the state of his apartment. But that's OK. <laughs> but when we see because I think I, th- I think that the, the thing that's complicated about Beth is because she has an eccentricity. But it's not falling into the same stereotype as the book sounds like it does, where it's like she's a plain Jane obsessed with only mental, you know, mental development. She's not interested in like stereotypical feminine, like markers of femininity. Ultra markers of femininity, too, in her case. And as soon as you put those two things together with like a I mean, I think like um, 
we talked about in a previous show, like Marvelous Miss Maisel, who mm-hmm. different thing because she's like, like very wealthy living in Manhattan. But she basically like if you imagine basically the story of Beth and then Beth sees Miss Maisel, who actually is living around the same time as <laughs> the aspirational. Uh, yeah, they, different universe. But if they live in the same universe, we're going to go what they do. And eventually yeah. they, you know, have a chess comedian thing. Somewhere Miss Maisel is impersonating a chess player and that's what's happening. Uh, but no, if you see like Miss Maisel, if she's, if she, you know, if she's seeing Miss Maisel's fashion, you know, in the magazines is like, that's aspirational. That's the kind of person I want to be. Because Miss Maisel also very much does the same thing. If she constructs identity, like mm-hmm. her outfit choices are, and this is also just like the craft of costuming in a, in a TV show or a movie, like her costume choices are very intentional. Mm-hmm. And even though that's true of any movie or television show, because hello, costume department, costume department. <laughs> in both Marvelous Miss Maisel and, and in the Queen's Gambit, those are made to be intentional choices by the character as well. Like mm-hmm. Beth is self-constructing. And also like I would, there's a few um, articles again, sewing people because this is, this is how we do like talking about the way that like, if you're presuming that Beth's clothing choices are strategic, Mm-hmm. that they are actually part of the chess match mm-hmm. then it's actually part of basically like the larger metagame um both in sort of like gaining her own confidence mm-hmm. but arguably also like in because i mean there are points at which you could argue that like whether she's doing it intentionally or not like the fact that she is very feminine like feminine presenting makes her opponents underestimate her so she can win I think she absolutely doesn't intentionally because she says so. I think she's aware of the metagame. Um, mm-hmm. And I, because I think, I think there's a couple of really she specific likes playing points. playing the metagame. Yeah. Well, there's like two real specific points where it. she does it that like really point out to me. First was with Benny where she talks about like the, the character that he has constructed for himself. She's like, what's with the knife, dude? And he's like, well, it's for protection. And she's like, from what? You're a chess player. She like literally calls him out on it and it makes fun of it. And then you find out the next morning she kicked his ass and he's like, I can't believe it. Less than 30 moves. What happened? You know, like she, so that's that first time where she does it at the, the, I think it's the world championships or whatever. The second, the first time she beats Benny, but also in Mexico, she does it with the kid, with the 12 year old boy, the great, you know, who's studying for your grandmaster. And it's like, cause I think that that's where she realizes, you know, he's nice and she and she's friendly with them because she's a kid that she sees herself in. she sees my, you know, is who I was as a kid. But like her being the sexy girl playing chess isn't working there. She does a little bit of flirting with the guys and, you know, with with guys, lesser players in different play, in different tournaments. But it doesn't really work on the kid. So she does this. Um, she does this mind game where she keeps walking away from the board while he's trying to play a very serious chess game. And she's like, she'll walk away and be bored. And then like, she'll be stretching. It's like, oh, you know, and, and she's just doing that to fuck the kid's concentration over. It's actually a really mean trick. And it was mm-hmm. brilliant in the context of the show. And uh, and just I'll compare it to Stephanie. You've seen me do this when I play poker sometimes. When we play when we play in a, in a hold'em tournament, when I get to a point where there's a certain point where I'm playing purely based on math because of I, I've calculated how much money I have versus how much other person is. like Steph, you've seen me play blind hands before where like for two or three hands in a row, I'll just bet without looking at my cards because <laughs> <laughs> I because because I because I've already figured out what I'm going to bet for the next two or three hands. Um, mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter what my hands are. And so it's a, it's a trick. It's a it's a part of the trick I learned by studying poker and like, you know, learning how the math worked learning how other people's games work and I can only do it in certain situations, but the game can get to a point where I know I can play three hands in a row without looking. 
And so I'll do it just to fuck over the other person's concentration. And I and, and I think that she's doing that. It's not, you know, it's kind of a screwing with the game. And if she can screw with the game by just wearing, you know, by wearing a busty top, she will. But she never wears anything revealing, anything busty. No, she yes, she does. Mm, she, very rarely. I don't remember her wearing anything that was revealing. Well, in that way. She's not in a bikini, but she's. But it's, I, my <laughs> interpretation, she she her clothes were very to me. They seem very rich, like they were good fabrics. Very like very nice. Sex- See, yeah, they're well. It's 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 also like a, it, it's it's very much a period of 1960s fashion too. Yeah. Like you know, because we, we actually which, which we actually see in the show, even though it's not commented on, you see in the, like early 60s as, as as she's like a teenager, you see like the full circle skirts, which were much more reminiscent of the 50s. By the end, she's wearing mini shift dresses. Like this is the this mm-hmm. is where we start seeing the beginning of the mini skirt, um, which is very much about women. Like so, I think like. Revealing by 2020 standards, probably not. Right, right. I think revealing by 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 60s standards, especially in the context of a male dominated space, maybe. But I think part of also what it is, it's like the clothes are not sexy because they're revealing. The clothes are sexy because she's not expected to be feminine and she is very feminine. Right, right. And it's in high contrast to the people around her who are not only men, but they're like not very they're they're not very fashion forward men. It's not just that they're men. It's they're not. You know, they're they're not. Yeah, they're not doing they're not doing the same kind of like aesthetic grooming that they are, because even Benny, who does, it's in a very like anti-fashion way. I don't know how to say that. Yeah, he's 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 a decade out of fashion. And I don't think he ever was in. I don't think that was ever. Well, no, he's he's a decade and 150 pounds away from where he needs to be in order to make that look work. He's trying to be John Wayne from a movie from, you know, 10 years before. And he doesn't look like that. He looks like a 12 so year old boy in true form. I believe we have solved nothing yeah. other than maybe don't wear a Wild West duster unless it's contextually appropriate and or you are a literal genius. I own two of them. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> Only one's leather. <laughs> It's okay. I have a top hat that I occasionally wear casually. So, <laughs> oh, this has been great. I, I mean, there's yeah, so much going on. I, I, what we've resolved for me is I think everybody should watch the show, even though we've talked about it. Uh, I mean, I think it's worth watching again for us. Oh, even. absolutely. I plan to. I need yeah. to do some more sewing planning. So, <laughs> yeah, there's more pandemic time to. to <laughs> yeah. Uh, Anastasia, thank you for joining us. It's nice meeting you. Thanks for having me. This was so much fun. I loved it. Yeah. Anything you want to plug or promote? Um, not particularly, but would love to continue this conversation with y'all and anyone who's listening. <laughs> you can um, find me on social media um, under my name or my handle, which is MZFAYYA. That will be linked in the show notes. Yeah. And Stephanie? Um, I don't really have anything to <laughs> <laughs> kind of between jobs right now. So <laughs> try to find something. If you want to hire a cognitive psychologist, then, you know. Um, I'm on Facebook. (laughs) (laughs) Send me a DM. (laughs) Uh, And Katya. Uh, As always, you can find me on Instagram at just that nerd kid. Mostly so in content, if if I'm honest. But if you too like uh, 1960s fashion, there'll probably be more of it on there soon. Absolutely. Also cats. I mean, who doesn't like cats? (laughs) 
<laughs> you can follow me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, all the places, always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show on all of social media at Vox Popcast. And you can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where you can not only comment on this show and give us your thoughts about Queen's Gambit and everything that we've said, but you can comment on our next show that we haven't even talked about yet. We post calls for comments where we ask you for thoughts of things that, you know, we're going to be talking about so that we can research, we can look into ideas and we can sort of respond to them. And as we talk on the show, if you enjoy the show and we certainly hope you do, please subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor, leave us a five-star review, um, especially on Apple podcasts or iTunes. That really helps the show. It makes the algorithm privilege us, makes other people find the show, makes us happy, especially happy if you don't just leave a rating but if you leave a five-star review if you write a little something something about what you like about the show that not only moves us up the iTunes algorithms but it gives us something to do and you could be the first review of 2021 and oh my god how is it 2021 this is so weird new year's resolution yeah, there you go. New Year's resolution should be write a review for that quirky little Marxist show. <laughs> and they say and they, you know, and they say that that if you get a quick, easy win, it's easier to build momentum and it'll literally take you less than five minutes. That's right. Absolutely. Start to start 2021 off uh, off right. This is your chance <laughs> to make the make the year better than last year. Like yes, you could be. You are, <laughs> right. Yeah, you are the straw <laughs> on the camel's back like, that like makes 2021 better than 2020. And it all starts with writing a review for Fox Podcast. <laughs> and also do us a favor. Subscribe to our new YouTube channel. It's not even new anymore. We've been doing it for a few months now. But subscribe to our YouTube channel that's linked in the show notes that um how do you say is it good? you know uh because we're really trying to build the build the channel over there you can listen to the show but you can also see images about all the stuff that we're talking about i'm kind of you know this one probably we're going to show a lot of weird fashion and you know maybe um stills from the show or not i don't know depends on how much time i have to put into it when i'm editing it but we'll see you just watched it on youtube let us know in the comments whether or not you liked the youtube version and press like and subscribe and hit bells and i don't know i'm not a millennial i don't really understand how youtube works um katya do that for me like like subscribe and ring the bell <laughs> thank you <laughs> uh, i would like to Hashtag thank millennial life there you go i would like to thank maximilian of Thoughtform music for our epic theme song building ever so more epically and playing us out i'd like to thank you at home for listening i'd like to thank stephanie and anastasia for joining us and we'll see you next time happy new year bye, bye. this put three things against her Lachenko having the white pieces, his still unstopped attack, and that extra allotment of time. So it was all the more impressive when she beat him with 25 minutes still on her clock.